Certainly there are people, you know, stunt guys who have played various roles and just put on a mask, but they don't sell that well. The basic studio exec, uh, legal, business affairs, publicity, yeah, 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 just put put a mask on a stuntman. Well, these are, that's spoken by men and women who could never do it themselves, who have no concept of what it means to do that. You know, it's like it's like somebody who's never had sex going, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. All you do is, oh, really? <laughs> yeah? Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, why don't you try it one time, motherfucker, and then we'll see what you do. I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no conscience, no understanding in even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him and then another seven trying to keep him locked up because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply... For over 40 years, the Halloween series has thrilled and terrified audiences. From its low-budget origins to spawning a new era of slashers. The franchise remains a cultural touchstone around the world, often referred to as the Gone with the Wind of horror. From the first chilling notes of the iconic score to the final frame, join Joel Brown as we explore the iconic horror series, digging deep into the characters, the storylines, and the spine-chilling scares. Welcome to Talking Shape with Joel Brown. The ultimate podcast for Halloween franchise enthusiasts. My next guest is an actor, stunt double and stunt performer with a list of credits spanning over 30 plus years and he now holds the distinction of playing the shape Michael Myers the most times than any other actor or predecessor. It's a huge welcome to James Jude Courtney. Hello. What's up, man? Good to be here. Oh, it's great to have you uh, on the show. Now, I do in doing a bit of research, uh, you had a epiphany that you were going to be an actor or in the in show business. Can you can you go back to that time when that epiphany happened? Was there was it a visual thing or just a thought? What happened? No, it was, it was a knowing. It was in fourth grade. I had several epiphanies in fourth grade for some reason. Um, you know, fourth grade is in, in, in the United States is when you can start playing contact football. Fourth grade is when, you know, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen in fourth grade. It's a, you're 10 years old and the epiphanies I had, uh, you know, I, I, I somehow figured out reincarnation. I had no idea. I, somehow I figured out that I'd be an older man, marry a younger woman later in life. That's happening now. Um, and I just had this epiphany. It was just a download. I'm going to make movies. I'm going to make movies for a living. So you know, and I never did, I didn't put up posters and dream about it. I, um, I, because it's a, it's a knowing it's like, this is my path. So I picked up my father's 1950s era Kodak Trilens eight millimeter camera, uh, in the fifth grade and every school project, uh, anything I could think of doing, I was, um, you know, I was making movies little, really, really, really bad, but you know, they, they were movies and my dad had a little movieola editor and I would edit and, and my mom was my first cameraman and my brothers were my first actors. And um, so for me, I consider, I, I consider myself a filmmaker. I, I went to Los Angeles. I mean, I, I, I couldn't afford um, back in the 70s when I was going to, to college. The only real film schools were NYU, UCLA and Southern Cal. And if you, you know, and there was, that was way out of my reach financially. So um I went to college majoring to one of the best journalism schools in the nation, one of the top ranked journalism schools at the University of South Carolina. And my, my thinking was I wanted to learn how to manipulate minds because everything we do, whether you're a journalist, whether you're, you know, whether you're a, 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 um, a filmmaker, a poet, a you know, musician, a, a painter, you're, you're, we're, we are playing with the minds of human beings. So then the question is, what do we want them to know? What do we want them to feel? What evocative approach are we going to take? So journalism taught me a lot. And um, as far as filmmaking goes, it's, I consider myself a filmmaker. It happened to be an actor, you know, I happened to be a stuntman. I happened to, you know, I happened to write. I happened to, I'm producing a film now. It's all part of the game. 
and the stunt work, is that something that you kind of fell into sort of wanting to be an actor? I mean, sort of like, I guess uh, I, I'm just imagining uh, as a stuntman, you kind of have to be athletic and, you know, you know how to fall or, you know, have, I guess some, have some form of background, like uh, whether it be kind of like a karate sort of for fighting or how, how did that sort of uh, come into the acting part of things for you? Well, I had a, um, I had a, uh, a coach who I met when I did a play called Requiem for Heavyweight. It's a Rod Serling play. Ran for nine weeks in Long Beach. It went to Broadway for one night, open and closed. It was, it was, um, but it was a great experience and got my first agent out of that. And Ron Ray uh, was his name. Ray Roberts, I think, is the way is the name he used when he worked in the movie industry. But he was a he was a lecturer and a and a, and a coach at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art. Took a liking to me. He started working with me privately. Um, he got me an audition for the Adventures of Conan, the live Conan show at the Universal Studios tour. It was a beautiful multi-million dollar set, fire-breathing dragon. We got a, I fought with double swords. I did a high fall, but um, I'd never tended to do stunts. My intention was to go out to, I, I finally moved out at 25 from uh, to Los Angeles. My intention was to be a huge star by 28, tell the studios what I was going to do by 30 and, you know, and be right at the top of the food chain by 35. Um, it's not exactly the way it went. So, you know, but he, he got me this audition and I was like, well, I don't know if I want to do it, but I'd done martial arts from seventh grade. I boxed a little, you know, I boxed martial arts, played football, played basketball. Um, you know, I, I have six younger brothers were all, you know, very athletic, you know, and now, now the next generation are state and national champion athletes. And, you know, so athletics was, was, you know, a very natural thing. So I, I went to the audition for the live show. Uh, got a part as double swordsman. Then I was elevated to uh, an, an, the like the lead bad guy role, who did a twenty foot high fall into a flaming pit, um, and that was just fun. So you know, back in the day, back in the in the seventies and eighties, I mean the eighties and, and, and even the nineties, um, somebody who does what I do was neither fish nor fowl. If you were an actor and a stuntman. You know, the, the, the common the consensus was, well, he's just an actor who can do some stunts or he's just a stuntman who can say a few words. But no one really got the idea that you could chew gum and walk at the same time. You know, and that was a real. So a lot of really, really good actors just gave up acting and went directly into stunts and ended up making a half million million bucks a year. I mean, they did. They did great. Uh, Alex Daniels, one of my very dear friends, who's now president of the Stuntman's Association, the dude, incredible Shakespearean actor. He's got a voice like Tony Bennett. I mean, he plays multiple instruments. But he put all that aside to do stunts. For me, I looked at it as I wanted every experience that I could possibly get because I knew that I was moving on to making my own films. And I knew that I was going to be playing characters in these films. Well, and little did I know I'd be playing the shape. But I knew that I'd be paying characters that were going to require insane levels of physicality, um, the depth of psychology, spirituality. Like I needed all these different experiences to build what I thought was going to be the framework of my career. It was Marlon. Was it Marlon Brando's acting coach that was, was that the one that you mentioned earlier? No, that was, uh, that she was Stella Adler. So, so I worked with Stella Adler as well. And she was, um, she was tough. She was good. She, um, you know, she, she, it was very, very difficult to study with her to get in, uh, you know, so it was, it was a super honor. And one of the things she did was she made us go, whatever scene we were doing, she made us go to Western costume and, and, and hire a costume and to basically rent a costume. Well, you know, back in the eighties, you know, you'd spend a hundred, 150, $200 to rent a costume and for people who are struggling and working their way up in the business, man, that's a lot of freaking money. Back in then, you know, it was a lot of money. It's a lot of money for a young actor now. I mean, in the 80s, it was it was like, you know, four times what it, what its, you know, value is now. And so what but it was one of the gifts she gave me. This is there's so again, there's so many gifts, but when you put a costume on, you will and if you allow yourself to, and if you absorb the energy of that costume, it's going to change you. And so, for instance, Emily Gorsuch, uh, Emily, uh, the costume designer for the three Halloween films I did, I think she's absolutely brilliant. And so what I did often, often was I would um, go into, you know, Chris Nelson's makeup trailer. And, you know, that was an hour to several hours process. Chris and I had our own rhythm. Chris would always introduce, he, he would look at this call sheet for the night before decide what music we're going to listen to. We have very similar taste. Both of us consider David Bowie our number one, like art influence. 
Um, and so we both really shared that. And then, of course, a plethora of other artists from all over the world, certainly in different genres. Um, and then I would go into my dressing room and I would put on Emily's costume and then I would sit and marinate in that. I would allow that to just take over my being. The, the, so the metamorphosis was complete when I finally got the costume on. The metamorphosis started with 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 Chris in the trailer, you know, in special effects makeup, and it and the final connection was, you know, the metamorphosis was was almost all there because I put that costume on. So one of the you know again many many lessons I learned from her, but she she taught me how to pay attention to very subtle things and to draw the energy and draw the wisdom from those subtle things and allow them to control me in ways that I wouldn't control myself. That's a great transition to the next question I had, because I have Christopher Nelson here. You like, obviously sort of mentioned that you sort of gelled really well. Obviously he was the special effects guy. He created the mask. And I guess uh, you, you sort of mentioned it was like a, like a spiritual sort of thing where you, you would turn into the character. Now, a lot of guys maybe in the past just, you know, thought it was just putting on a mask and, you know, put, you know, stepping on a line here and doing what they need to do. But you really sort of took it on as like, you know, you need to become this character and uh, you study a particular type of, I'm, I'm trying to think of the, what, what you studied, like this, the spiritual side of it. I think you mentioned it in a previous uh, interview. Well, as actually, this is, this is the confluence of a, of a lifetime of experience. You know, Christopher Nelson and I, I feel like Christopher Nelson and I co-created this character. Um, you know, I mean, it, certainly I created the lion's share of the 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 experience of the character but i think the co-creation happened with nickel you know nick castle initially creating the character that i embraced the energy of and christopher nelson creating the special effects makeup that changed me and allowed me to become this character and then of course all the internal work and the internal work is you know decades of studying as an actor decades of uh spiritual work psychological work um, you know, traveling to South America and doing cleansing rituals for three weeks in the Andes before I went to the jungles to do ayahuasca. Uh, and then the ensuing 20 or so ayahuasca journeys I did in the backyard of Dr. Alan Blank, the former chief of staff of Cedar sinai Psychiatric Ward. You know, I've done uh, iboga with uh, African shaman. I've done peyote with uh, North American First Nations shaman. Um, I've worked with Cuban shaman. Um, so these, these shamanic journeys um, are not necessarily for the faint of heart. Um, Iboga, definitely not for the faint of heart. Like strap your ass in, buddy, because it's going to be a two-day journey and it ain't, it's not, it's not going to be pleasant. So, you know, that kind of work. Um, you know, then my first my first film, Freeway Maniac, my, my still very good friend Paul Winters directed that film, wrote and directed it. And we, and we had no idea what we're doing. We never made a film. We had no idea how to make a film. We just freaking did it. And for that reason, I'm grateful for the Paul. Well, Paul arranged for us, he and I, to stay in a psychiatric ward um, for for in a lockdown ward for a weekend. And these are with psychopathic killers, paranoid schizophrenics. But these guys have been in there for 15, 20, 25 years. They're all, they're all doing the Thorazine shuffle. You know what I mean? They're, they're absolutely harmless. Um, but they were candid and I could get into their into their psyches. And then the psychologist would help me you know, understand it. Then as far as movement goes, you know, yeah, I've, I've done several different martial arts, um, but the, the the art that informed the movement of this character the most is Aikido. Um, because Aikido, you don't lift up your feet, you don't kick, um, you know, you your feet are very, very much like a whirling dervish, like the, like the Sufi master whirling dervishes. It's very circular and flowing. The hara, which is two inches below your belly button, is like a gyroscope. You, you you maintain constant balance and fluidity. And so the object of the way I moved as the shape was the that fluidity, that balance, that smooth. And when they tried to find someone to play the shape, uh, the flashback shape in Halloween Kills, they looked at over 200 people, couldn't find anybody to move like me. It just so happened that, that um, Aaron uh, Armstrong, who was the stunt coordinator on Halloween Kills, uh, had also practiced. He's a Kung Fu guy, but he had also done, like myself, 10 or 15 years of Aikido, in addition to all the other arts. So when we sat down and talked about it, I didn't have to show him. I just I just told him how I moved, and boom, he picked it up. 
And I think just sort of hearing that, like I'm obviously saying like a massive Halloween fan and there's, you know, I think this is the the horror franchise where there's so many fans and sort of hearing you sort of explain that background, I think that kind of goes a long way with fans, but also just sort of, you know, watching the these uh, three movies, I'd have to say this is probably, you know, people have their opinion about the trilogy, but this incarnation of michael myers is probably one of one of the best if you know yeah as close to the original and you mentioned nick castle and i think you know he asks john carpenter you know when he's doing the scene he's you know walking across the house to the other house he goes what's my motivation here you know what is it and john carpenter said to him just walk like so i'm I'm not sure if you had like did you have this sort of really in-depth conversation with nick castle or who's just like oh i was just told to walk nick and i have never talked about the character ever i met him three weeks in I, the caveat, Nick is very flippant about that. The, 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 I, I'll add a caveat to that. Look at his filmography. Look at what he's written. Look at what he's directed. Look at what he's created. Look at him as a musician. Look at him as, I mean, all the things he does, he didn't just walk. A talented artist will take nothing and make something out of it. That's what Nick Castle did. Nick Castle took what Deborah Hill and John Carpenter wrote he took what he saw happening around him. He took what he felt as the character and he imbued it with something naturally. It's just something an artist does. So, you know, McCall bullshit on, I just walked, you know. Um, and, and secondly, you know, I, I, I think the way I captured it was uh, there was a great old character actor named Ted Knight. I just moved out to Los Angeles. I was waiting on tables. I only had to wait on tables a few years, which I was, I was very blessed. I, I was lucky to hit pretty quickly. And I'm grateful for the experience of being a server. I think everybody should be a server, frankly. But I was waiting on this, this dashing 65-year-old man walks in with this 20-something you know, ingenue. And, and, and I was like, whoa, you got it going on, man. Right on, dog. You know? And he said, you're an actor. I went, how do you know? He goes, I, I can tell. He goes, so he goes, sit down. I, I can't sit down. You know? He goes, well, stand here and talk to me. And we talked about acting. And one of the things, the greatest gift I think probably anybody ever gave me as an actor was he said, learn to emulate, emulate the bartender, emulate the guy walking down the street, emulate your mother, emulate everybody. But when you emulate them, don't look at the way they move their hand. Don't try to do their voice the way they, don't try to get their accent. Reach inside their soul. And if you can grab their soul, you will naturally do everything the way they do it. And so I practiced that. I, it's a very spiritual experience. So when I was called to to go down to Charleston um, to you know to be put on tape, I watched the you know nineteen seventy eight Halloween one time, and there's a scene where Nick Castle is going camera left to camera right in a backyard. All he's doing is walking as the shape, and I went, I got it, I got it. Whatever he created, I got it. So then from that point forward, I didn't think about the way I was going to move. I didn't practice. I didn't look in the mirror. I never gave it a second thought because I knew I had grasped what he did and it was inside me. And once it was inside me, then I was going to let it have to filter through all these years of all this life experience that I've had, which was going to create the shape through James Drew Courtney. Something interesting that I uh, recently just watched, I was just flipping through my phone and it was Quentin Tarantino. And he said that uh, Harvey Cattell sort of said to him, you know, when you're um, casting an actor, you know, you're watching them do their read, let them, let them do it the first time, how they imagined the character or the scene to be, because it's so easy to give notes after the fact, um, because, you know, by giving them or telling them notes before they do their their bit, it kind of may change what they initially had in their head and what they had in their head might have been, you know, pure gold, so to speak. So was it kind of like one of those things like you, you semi sort of studied what Nick Castle did, but you thought you're going to put your own little spin on it uh, as well? I didn't, you know, I, I didn't even consider the spin. I just, I just grasped his soul. Yeah. Like, and we grabbed a hold of him, never gave it a second thought. And then the only thing I did for preparation was breathing you know, and I breathe. I mean, because I breathe the character in yeah. and I breathe. That's why I, I don't carry him with me. That's why, I, you know, I'm not in a psych ward. It's because, you know, I, I literally breathe the character in, allow it to inhabit me, allow it to control me. And then I breathe it back out. When we hear check the gate, you know, as soon as we're done with a particular setup, I breathe it right back out of me. You know, the, but I had captured the character so, so completely 
that I was on tape, you know, the the uh, casting director was asking questions, having me move, all the kind of stuff you have to do. I went out to the parking lot, got in my pickup truck, wasn't even out of the parking lot. I got a call from California. Well, I'm in South Carolina, Charleston, South Carolina. I get a call from California from Blumhouse and they're like, hey, are you available? I was like, yeah, 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 I'm available. Didn't even get two miles to the freeway and they called me back and they said, hey, David Gordon Green wants to meet you. Can we uh, can we make that happen? And so I went back, I met Malik Akkad and Ryan, uh, Ryan Turek and Ryan Freeman and David Gordon Green and uh, Danny McBride. And I, you know, we just had, I just had the same experience. I just let them know that this is what my being created in terms of the shape. And as far as I know, they never looked at another person. They were just like, dude, done. That's, that's amazing. I mean, like I said before, just sort of, I, I guess, uh, I think Halloween fans could appreciate the, the amount of level or, you know, uh, thought that's gone into it because again like you know a lot of people just think it's just a, a person wearing a mask and overalls right and speaking of the mask uh chris nelson basically created as close to the original mask that we've probably seen in the whole franchise besides obviously the the second film you will not put that mask on again is that so is that uh obviously because as you just explained how like what that transformation that you go to, to be the character, is that something, is that sort of like respecting that you don't want to put that mask on? Cause you kind of feel you'd be taken away from all the effort that went into portraying the shape on screen. Uh, yeah. I, um, I, I, I don't put the mask on because you know, first and foremost, because I know what happens, you know, I, I know the energy and, you know, the ancient Greeks didn't consider themselves actors. They considered themselves channels. They channeled the spirits of of those entities that were playing the characters. This is how I work. So that's a living, breathing entity that I don't necessarily want inside me. Um, I think to, you know, and you'll notice, like if you go to convention, you'll see, uh, you know, uh, especially guys who play Jason, they'll put on a, a Jason costume and they'll do photo ops with a costume on. You won't find one guy who played Michael Myers putting on a Michael Myers costume, ex except for one guy who didn't really play him you know tony moran i mean he he, he was a one scene and you know and he, but you'll notice that everybody who has actually played the character and has respect for the character we don't even do that we you know none of us will put that on and do photo ops it's a fact so you know for me it's out of respect for the character um it's out of respect for the work that we all created and uh you know frankly for me, not the other guys who, who you know, want to um, go into costumes, you know, whatever the characters they played and whatever movies they played. Um, yeah, man, do what you want to do. That's that's you. Um, for me, it would take a character that I greatly revered and that I poured my heart and soul into um, and make it and, you know, turn it into a clown on the sideshow. And, and I got to say one more thing, man, you brought up, you know, um, you know, just putting on a mask and walking. Certainly there are people, you know, stunt guys who have played various roles and just put on a mask or, you know, had, but they don't sell that well. The basic studio exec, uh, you know, uh, legal, business affairs, publicity, um, you know, the, those guys, yeah, 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 just put, just put a mask on a stunt man. Well, these are, that's spoken by men and women who could never do it themselves who have no concept of what it means to do that. You know, it's like it's like somebody who's never had sex going, oh, yeah, 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 all you do is, oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> well, why don't you try it one time, motherfucker, and then we'll see what you do, you know what I mean? So so I think it's really important to understand. I think the fans, I think the fans get that. I think they get when you throw, you know, and, and, and I think, for instance, Chris Duran, I think did a really, really wonderful job. Um, he and I, he's, he's, a, he's a martial artist and a spiritual man and, um, we've had wonderful conversations about, you know, our approach and what we did and what we felt. And, you know, so I, I, I think that's, um, I think it's important. And I think the fans appreciate that. A thousand percent. And back to Christopher Nelson, you called him the shape maker. He would help you sort of transform into the shape, um, obviously the mask. And he said he would look at the call sheet and sort of, uh, he would, you know, create a playlist or ha have an album off the top of your head, can you remember coming in to work one day? What what was playing? What was the album or what was the the vibe, the tunes that were playing? It wasn't playing. Uh, what happened was I would sit down, everything would be ready, readied for me. 
And then he'd go over and he'd hit play. And then the work would start. I avoided listening to Dark Star for a very, very long time. Um, I'm, I'm not a I'm not a fan fan of anybody or anything, but I felt a personal relationship with David Bowie and and what he had created uh, with with all his art, you know, with everything that he did, and um, and I just knew that it wasn't. And I you know I have all, all of his albums and, and I've been following him since I was a kid. Um, I I just wasn't ready to hear that album, and if I'm remembering correctly he played that album for me it, it was a it was a pivotal it was, i think it was the death scene and um but anyways it was a very very powerful scene um i tend to i tend to lose consciousness when i'm when i'm in the, in that moment when when chris and i are creating yeah sometimes we have great conversations sometimes we laugh but chris is a wonderful collaborator he's a really he's a really kind gentle funny insanely talented um batshit crazy guy and you know and so um we had a lot of fun but it's also really serious and and he would say he would often say you know it's, yes it's really amazing how many actors and stuntmen don't want to be in the makeup chair and i'm like dude that's part of the creative process like right now we are metamorphizing this character into a living green being i mean who wouldn't want to be a part of that you know, maybe a stunt guy who has no concept of acting or maybe an actor who's just there to take a paycheck. But that wasn't Chris and me, man. We had, Chris and I had some, you know, really. So yeah, so Dark Star was definitely the the album that that rocked my world. It was at the, the live album by Grateful Dead or it was the David, is there a David Bowie album? Did I say Dark Star or Black Star? Black Star. Um, oh, Black Star. Oh, Black Star. I'm sorry. I'm yeah. I'm brain brain farting right in front of your very eyes. <laughs> it's all good. No, because I, I was I was just yeah. looking up. I was just like, I was trying Dark to get. Star. Yeah, I say do Dark Star. Where'd that come from? Uh oh, well, it's, it, well, it's it's a Grateful Dead live album, so you might have to check that out after uh, after this. No, I no, I mean, I mean, I mean, actually, hearing the star song right now, the Grateful Dead. Um, anyways, yeah. So no, it's Black Star, and um, and I had avoided. For very very for years, yeah, yeah, Blackstar, because that's that was that was his last um, David Bowie's last album. And do you th- okay? That, that's he knew he was dying. Yeah. Do you think Do you think you avoided that as a fan because you knew this was his last uh, offering, like the, the the last thing that he was you know creating while he was dying, and this this was the the end, so to speak. You know, because I, I, I don't process things like this intellectually. Um, I, I tend to trust my intuition, and my intuition is 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 really really served me well. Um, I have went through a period where thirteen people close to me died. You know, I held my brother's hand when he died. My uh, some several friends, um, business partners, um, my godparents, my aunt and uncle, my my uh, my favorite uncle. I mean, just it was just ridiculous how many people died in a very very short period of time for me and. You know, I, I, I mean, having been raised, I'm not a practicing Catholic, but I was raised Irish Catholic. Irish Catholics throw the best freaking funerals on the planet. There's no party like an Irish Catholic funeral. Like, you know, the music, the, the, the booze, the, the joy, the laughter, you know, it's, it's so for me, processing death, I've under, I, I have come to understand that I, um, I have my own rhythm that I need to honor. Um, I don't know that I, I didn't, consciously avoid it i was conscious of the fact that i was avoiding it but i knew that i would listen to it at the right time and um and and so and of course you know given the perfection of the relationship that chris and i enjoyed um you know creatively uh, of course it would be chris who would bring that to me at the right place in the right time it's funny you mention that because i haven't indulged in um that that album um you know, like I, I yeah, I, I'd like I'd say I'm a David Bowie fan. Wouldn't say I'm a super fan, but yeah, it's an album that I haven't looked at, and I'll maybe I was sort of projecting my own kind of um, feeling, like you know, this is the last, this is this is it, this is the last thing that um, you know he put to recording right until he um, sadly passed away. Yeah, he was definitely saying goodbye, and he was definitely leaving the world with. Um, I mean, the man was insanely well read incredibly well-read and and you know i've heard people call him a nihilist and you know like all put all these labels on david bowie you can't do that you can't do that to a mind like his his mind was so expansive his 
his knowledge and awareness and and again his musical influences like if you listen to his music you can hear his he, he's very unabashed about his influences he's very unabashed about the you know the, the the authors that he that he was moved by and um so you know i think he was very very clear with what he was leaving the world and um and you know a, a great a great artist like that you know th there's never a good time to, to check out man and something interesting I found out uh, uh, prior to your involvement in the Halloween franchise, you kind of had a bit of a connection to the franchise prior to you starting in the sense that you're good friends with Rick Rosenfall and uh, Nancy Stevens. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's funny. Um, I played tennis at their house for for, for a while and uh, and I got to know um, my, my girlfriend at the time, Sally, and I spent quite a bit of time up there. And then Sally um was also really good friends with nancy's mother who was just a spitfire man and but nancy and rick and rick's a badass man he 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 was still playing hardcore hockey until you know he's well into his 70s so the the dude is not he's 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 a man's man i mean and i love him to death he's kind he's generous and he's funny and of course nancy is just you know just a remarkable woman. And so it was so great because I hadn't seen them in years and um, gosh, maybe 15 years, you know, because I'd gone and traveled for five years and then all this kind of crazy stuff happened. So, you know, Sally and I moved on and she went and got married and, you know, all that stuff. So um, so then when I first saw her on uh, on the set of Halloween Kills, it was like, yo, we're just like, Nancy, oh my God. You know, like it was it was so great to see her and it was so fun to kill her. <laughs> it, I guess yeah, was there any conversation uh before or after that or oh yeah 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 I mean we, we got to hang out which was great and um and we've gotten you know we've been able to hang out and catch up and you know that, that kind of stuff so it's it's really it's it's sweet and Rick is such a freaking talented director man I mean he's just done such wonderful work I think the I think he did a great job uh in, in the Halloween franchise and I think he um I think you know I, I just love his filmography he's just done great stuff now, you mentioned before about not, uh, I mean, most Michael Myers, uh, people who portrayed him, uh, not wearing the mask at sort of conventions or things like that. Now, what about, so let's say, if there was a continuation within um, the the, the storyline and trilogy that you're involved with, or if there was a reboot, would you don the mask again? Or do you see yourself sort of staying loyal to David Gordon Green and, that set of people and wouldn't do that unless they they were involved in some capacity. You know, it'd be hard. It, it, some it'd be hard to duplicate or you know replicate, duplicate, or even come close to what David Gordon Green um, created. Um, and and you know Danny and and it was the confluence of all the things coming together. Um, now. It would it be possible that another really wonderful director and some really wonderful writers um, would want to, you know, take it someplace and we're still in the time frame where they were going to use, I mean, because, you know, remember David Gordon Green, um, when, when he, when the stunt coordinator for Halloween 2018 read the script, he called David and he called Malik Akkad and said, hey guys, the script is way different than anything, you know, that's been done before. Whoever plays the shape is going to have to have really deep acting chops and be a very good stuntman. And David Gordon Green said, okay, well, he's got to be six foot three, 200 pounds, and he's got to be in his sixties. Who do you know? So, you know, David is, was very exacting about what he wanted in this character. And I happen to fit that, you know, that, that right into that glove. Um, David is that exacting with every single person in front of that camera. He, he looks at every picture and looks at the extras and sees who he likes and doesn't like. He's very particular about wardrobe. He's very particular about, I mean, he knows what he wants. And then what he creates is he knows what he wants. He gives you that sandbox and then he lets you rip, man. He just lets you fly. I mean, David never directed me. David told me what he needed in terms of blocking or what, you know, like what the shape, you know, what the, what the, what the scene was about or, or what he was looking for. But he never directed me. He never. The only direction he gave me was he called me after I got cast, and he said, uh, "So, uh, so, so, Jim. Uh, so I've been thinking 
oh, the shape needs to move like a cat. And I was like, well, that's crazy because my cat's in my lap right now. And I watch him hunt all the time. He goes, okay, well, we got that settled. Uh, so what's up, man? Like, uh, you know, and then it was just, you know. So, yeah, it's 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 special. This this was this was lightning in a bottle. And and would I be open to it? Yes. Am I? Is it likely to happen? No, no. It's sort of just um, uh, speaking of uh, you know becoming the shape and you know creating tension. Like say for example, the the opening scene to Halloween 2018, you're essentially just standing in a square and um, Eco Star, you know, is holding is holding a mask and you know technically not not much is happening, but the the tension that like you know that was created from that scene is that do you sort of put that in part with sort of david gordon green how he set things up how he set up the other the other patients and you know yourself being in the zone and all the actors being in the zone for that particular scene like because like you know and i'm not trying to take away from the opening scene but like you know there's technically not much happening but the tension that builds right oh yeah yeah and that that's that's pure david gordon green I mean, you know, the, the, and, and the art department, you know, art direction, I mean, and, and costume and casting, you know, all the nutcases that are surrounding me, you know, the, you know, the, the actors that I worked with, man, you know, those guys were 100% in, you know, 100% in the energy between us. I mean, I wasn't facing them. We were still looking at each other. You know what I mean? We were still, even though we're back to back, we were still looking at each other. And and I stood out there without a coat on. It was uh, I I don't know it's centigrade very well, but it's 29 degrees. So freezing is 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It was 29 degrees. Then the wind chill was minus eight degrees because you know the the the, the, the wind coming off the uh, the bay. And I was there in scrubs, freezing my fucking ass off. And you know I hacked up green shit for a week after that. I got so sick. But we all wanted the tension of of that, 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 that discomfort and that insanity and, and, you know, what was at stake in this moment. And so, um, and, and as a testament to, to Chris Nelson's work, Bob, you know, you know, before he held the mask up, he was like, you know, I walked up and I started talking, he goes, hey, 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 mate, um, what, what, what happened to your eye? And, uh, I was like, oh yeah, yeah. You remember back in, um, you know, in, in the original where Jamie stabs him and he, and he goes, oh, fuck me. I thought I thought your eye was really fucked up. Oh my god, that's a prosthetic. <laughs> okay, out of the, out of the three, uh, you know, and some some may have the same answer, but would love to know out of out of the three Halloween films that you did, which was uh, the most fun, the most challenging, and the one you're most proud of. Well, first of all, I see it as all one movie. 18 is the first act, kills the second act, ends as the third act. So I really have to look at it through the lens of having made, I, I really, there, there are special, there's a certain specialness to each of them. I think, for instance, um, you know, in 2018, this is all of us beginning to work together. This is the magic of the deeply spiritual aspect of this character which David created this incredible, you know, canvas for us to paint on and, you know, for Chris to paint on myself and, and, you know, the other actors. And, and, and so I think I would look at, you know, 2018 as a very spiritual experience. Um, and then for Halloween kills, you know, it's like, it, it's, it was so violent and physical and, and it was so um, it was so cathartic to 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 let all that out, all that violence out. And so, um, you know, in sexual analogies, I mean, twenty eighteen was like making love, and 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 you know, Halloween Kills was sport fucking in an orgy. I mean, it was just like it was insane. It was just so insane. And then and then Halloween ends. It takes it right back into the spiritual. You know, Jamie, Jamie, when we shot the, the finale, which, by the way, hands down my favorite scene, not only my favorite scene to have shot in the movies, but to have shot ever in my career. And she said that was absolutely the same for her. Like, you know, it was like, like right up there, like she'd never done. And she said it was the most powerful thing she's ever experienced in, in a scene. And I did, too. Well, of course it was. This is she's she's putting to rest, you know, 40 some odd years of of this. And and so, you know, 
when she came over to me, well, actually, I called her over. I got on the set when we were going to shoot the finale, and I called her over. I said, uh, uh, Jamie, can let's, let's talk about this. We went beat by beat. We had tears welled in our eyes. And then at a certain point when Chris is doing special effects makeup on me and they're resetting lights, I, I held my hand out, and she just stood next to me holding my hand with her eyes closed for an hour. I have that picture, but I've never posted it because I think it's just for shit. It's just for Jamie and myself. But she held my hand for an hour. And we really, we both, we both went through the emotions as the character of wanting to kill the other person and then wanting to just give up and die. And so it was this, it was this teeter tight, it was a seesaw between us of energy. And the woman is so professional and so 100% locked in and we exposed so much of ourselves emotionally in the, in that scene. Um, so for me that I, I think the, that, you know, we had created an, an, another, another ending, but I think the way David built that up for the finale between Jamie and myself, um, I think he saw that in the very ending with, with how they disposed of the body was the only, was the, was the best way to do it. Um, but for me, that scene hands down encapsulates everything that we did in, in those three films. I absolutely love um, Halloween ends. I think uh, out of the out of the three, it's it's my absolute favorite. But it it's for some reason very divisive amongst fans. From your perspective, why do you think that is? For the same reason, season of the witch yeah. was all right because and, and I remember several times on set, David walking on set wearing a season of the witch t shirt. He was very he was not too subtle about the fact that he was going to fuck with people. And I, I think just like Season of the Witch, um, David knows that it's going to um, it's going to it's going to grow. It's going to become a cult classic. He knows that. He is not the director he is because he's a stupid guy. You know what I mean? He he he's prescient. He sees things ahead. You know, think of the prescience of his films. You know, in 2018, I mean, he's dealing with you know hashtag Me Too and alcoholism and family dynamics. Halloween kills. He's dealing with mob mentality. We shot that how long before January 6th, before the insurrection? But it showed how regular, decent civilians, decent human beings can just lose their freaking minds in a mob mentality. I mean, he really, he 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 illustrated that so perfectly. Um, I think, you, you know, Halloween ends for me. And this is how I, this is how I, characterize it a lot for fans who don't like it and this is absolutely true to play american football to play any football to play australian rules to play anything the first and foremost thing you've got to do if you have any chance of winning let alone winning a championship is you've got to buy into the coach's program you've got to buy into the coach's program if you don't like the coach's program get out of the locker room man go find another coach go find another team because the coach's program is going to make or break your, your chances so from that point, as an athlete and as an actor, I want to play every snap. I want to be on every down. I want to be in every single play. But if that's not the coach's program, I'm there for the team. I'm there to win that championship. I'm not there for my glory. It's the same thing with making a movie. I was there for the team. I was there for my Halloween family. I was there for Jamie and for Chris and for Ryan Turek and for Malika Cod and for David and for, you know, for all the beautiful people, Mike Simmons, I mean, all, all the people who were putting in this amazing energy into that project and believed in it, I was there for them. So I didn't get to play as much in that game, but I feel like we freaking won. So I'm happy. You can um, speak on this or not speak on this, so you may not even know. Was the original concept for this trilogy to occur over the one night or that's, is that just a rumor that's out there? I have never heard that from anybody uh, who would know. Yeah. With Halloween Ends, you're, you're talking about the spiritual side of things, uh, and I'm hoping you might be able to speak to this. When Michael Myers has Corey Cunningham by the throat down in the sewer, is it a, is it a transfer of evil, or is it Michael seeing something in Corey that he saw in himself back in 1963 before he killed his sister? In my mythology, yeah, um, there is no evil. All right, mm -hmm. all right. So I live. I that character exists for me in a fifth dimension 
like in a place outside of duality. There is no right or wrong, black or white, up or down. There, it's just there's just isness. It's just is. So this character, the way I lived him, is just doing what he is meant to do. This is this is what he. This is his design. You know, you don't you don't criticize a cat for playing with a mouse and then killing him. It's what cats do. Yeah. Michael Myers, you know, the shape is doing what the shape does. Being that both uh, uh, Rowan and myself have had, you know, deep spiritual experiences in our lives, um, have done a lot of plant medicine with spiritual intent. Um, we have very similar perspectives on how we work. Uh, that was absolutely an energy transference. You know, the fans can judge what that energy is, but that's all it was. But energy transferences are powerful. We knew what we were doing, and there was absolutely that when we when we shot that scene. And I think the thing I love and other fans love about Halloween's ends is, and just in general, I think this is a great way to to study film or read books or what have you is, uh, and especially in, I think it's more of a horror thing that's happened is people have been very handheld with this means this or that means that and i think halloween ends is you, you there's so many different interpretations you could take you know from that scene or from the movie in general like i sort of took it as you know the town of haddonfield sort of you know kind of did turn this kid bad they kind of shunned him they turned they, they, they turned their back on him and that was part of the reason why there was a bit of a transformation in with with cory cunningham but you know was that was that was that you know, the, the, you see that transfer that happened there. Was, was was that always there? Or I just feel like, it, and I think maybe that's why it got a bit lost on some fans that, you know, maybe they weren't handheld enough. It was very kind of open-ended and it was very kind of John Carpenter-esque. I feel, you know, he's, you know, say 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 less, show more, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, again, this is classic David Gordon Green. Um, he, you know, he knew... Um, he, he knows the depth and breadth of the audience and he understands that certain audience members are going to have a keener awareness of archetypal characters and mythology. And some people are going to be, especially, you know, well, th there is no special, like th 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 there's no age, you know, whether it's a younger audience or an older audience, um, it, you know, nuance is lost on a lot of people. And so I think what he did was he layered it, you know, so there are Easter eggs for everybody at every layer. So that there is nuance and you can go, oh, yeah. And if you have a knowledge of mythology or you have a knowledge of if you've ever read Joseph Campbell, for instance, you know, then you go, oh, oh, OK, I, I see what you did there. If you don't know Joseph Campbell or you don't know, you know, the references that he makes in, in various places, um, you know, in terms of mythology or spirituality or psychology, um, you're still going to be affected by it because. This is why we call characters archetypes. This is why we, you know, th this is why these mythologies exist. So I think David, um, David knew that um, that the audience ultimately would either subconsciously or consciously get what he was saying. And um, and then he also knew, based on his season of the witch t-shirts, that it was going to take some people 10 or 20 or 30 years to get it. And that's just fine because that's what great art does. You know, I was just looking at some impressionist paintings up in Detroit at the uh, Institute of Art up there. And it's so amazing when you study art, when you look at art and you just let it wash over you. And yes, you know, in art, you, you know, art historian will tell you if the apple is held this way and the fingers are held this way, then that means this and this. True. But then there's these deeper things that happen in a work of art that only you can really understand in that moment for you. And that's when that piece of art speaks to you. And that's what David does. That's what he creates with, with Michael Simmons, insane director of photography. I've got to put you on the spot here a little bit uh, in regards to your uh, co-stars and out of the trilogy. And I guess, you know, there is no right or wrong um, uh, answer here, I guess. Uh, which is your, uh, you know, which co-star out of the, out of this trilogy surprised you the most? Hmm. Wow. That's a hard question. Because really, again, this goes, it always goes back to the coach. It always goes back to the director, right? And what David managed to create for three films was this incredibly cohesive, talented, hardworking cast of characters. We all talked about it in the first one. 
that we felt like we had either been a village together in some past life, or we'd marched in a battle in some past life, or maybe we were a Shakespearean troop. Who knows? I mean, but it was like, it, but except there were too many of us to to be a Shakespearean troop. But we all felt like we'd been there before. Um, I think. No, man, because everybody gave what David expected them to give. And here's the deal. Like when I, when I, even when I went to Los Angeles, you know, when I finally graduated from college, I had way more credits in college than I needed. But I stayed as long as I could because I wanted to absorb anthropology and psychology and, you know, all the literature I could and all the film stuff I could. And I just kept absorbing, absorbing, absorbing. And then one day I woke up and it's time to graduate. So I went down and applied for graduation, graduated. My brother and myself and a buddy jumped on motorcycles, toured the United States in motorcycles, ended up in California. I landed in California with the expectation, not the dream, not the hope, the expectation that I was going to do what I'm doing right now or what I did for a career. I had that same expectation when I walk on a set. I expect that every other actor is going to have their shit tight, just like mine. I expect that every stunt person is going to be a very talented athlete. I expect the director is going to know what he's doing. I expect that the cinematographer is going to know what he's doing. And I expect, you know, I mean, so I just had these expectations and they're almost always rewarded, you know? So I have to say, no one surprised me. <laughs> Everybody was exactly what I thought they were going to be. What about uh, favorite kill out of the trilogy? Dude, that's a rough one. Um, there's so many fun ones. Like, you know, like the, the bathroom in 2018, um, that was just so freaking brutal. And it was the first really brutal, you know? So, um, but in 2018 also the, you know, the, the window kill, because dude, if I were going to kill somebody, that's how I do it. Get in quiet, boom, done, gone. But the Cameron kill is kind of gratifying. I mean, snapping that little fucker's neck after he was being such a douchebag. He, he kind of redeemed himself a little bit in kills though, didn't he? Well, that's a matter of opinion. <laughs> Um, you mentioned your co-star Jamie Lee Curtis in that final scene that meant so much to the both of you. Is there is there any other great story that you could share about Jamie Lee Curtis? Because speaking to other um, people who have uh, played Michael Myers, like Chris Rand said that she's an absolute sweetheart. Like she was very hands-on, you know, would like help out with certain things. Um, said sweet sweetheart, but, but swears like a sailor. Um, anything that you could share about uh, the now Oscar winner, Jamie Lee Curtis? Dude, and Sarah and I were out there, uh, you know, in Los Angeles for the Oscars, and we just had tears streaming down our cheek. I mean, um, it, it, it makes me it makes it makes me emotional just thinking about that. That woman freaking deserves it. She uh, she is just she's self-deprecating. She's so highly intelligent. Um, she's you know, she does not suffer fools gladly. She will not put up with shit. But she also is very matron like matriarchal she's she's sort of this was her brood you know what i mean and um really clear really concise uh body as fuck you know um i mean i mean there's one there's a scene in 2018 which didn't make it to um because we shot a new ending but in that scene um so we're fighting and i hadn't really experienced her as an athlete yet I didn't know how athletic she was. And they had a thing where they, I was holding a knife down like this, holding it out. And she's swinging like a baseball bat, the butt end of a rifle. And before the first take, I'm like, oh, fuck, this is a broken hand, man. You know, working with an actor is never a good thing because actors get just batshit crazy. A good, a good, like Tom Cruise is an actor who does his own stunts. And that man is so controlled. I've worked with him. The man is so good at what he does. Most actors are just out of freaking control when they're fighting and, you know, because they, 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 they're not skilled. 30 takes, she hit the freaking blade, right? Hits the blade. Then the next thing is I end up, we end up tussling, I end up on top of her. And David's like kneeling at the side and he's kind of looking, he goes, nah, I don't know, it looks too much like a porn sex scene. <laughs> and, and I looked up at him and went, oh, come on, man, let me hit it one time. And she grabbed my beard and yanked me down and was like, and she's just, I mean, we were just having a body moment. And then, and in this modern hashtag two moment where you have to be so careful about what you say and who you say it to, she and I had permission with David to have a moment that could have been trouble for somebody else. But she's so in control of herself and she's so, 
remarkable in her ability to read people. And and again, she does not suffer fools gladly, which I super appreciate, man. I don't need bullshit in my life. You know what I mean? I don't need someone being nice to me if they don't like me. You don't let me fuck you. I don't give a shit. You know, go somewhere else. I I, I think my experience with Jamie is absolutely just top of the freaking heap, professionally for sure. Um, but also um, it, just as a human being. I was going to say the Australian term is we like to say they call a spade a spade sort of, you know, call it like it is, you know, you kind of know where you stand with them uh, from the get go. Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's wonderful. And, and that's part of why I think, um, you know, so the, the, the whole, the whole, fr- the, the three films, the, the one film that we did together starts at the top with David Gordon Green and Jamie Lee Curtis, you know, and those two people being the remarkable human beings that they are and being so freaking good at what they do. That's why, that's why we killed it. Do you think now this is kind of one of the, the final questions. It's a bit of a big one. Like I want to know what your opinion is. What, what, what will be the legacy of this Halloween trilogy? That's kind of the, the main question there. And do you think that the Halloween franchise can only be uh, as successful as it is when it has the likes of a, a Jamie Lee Curtis and certain people like the John Carpenters in the, in the you know producing having that this set of core people, or could you you find other people other people that could take the uh, franchise to greater heights if that's even possible? Well, Malik, uh, you know Akkad and uh, Ryan Freeman over at Trancus um, have a very keen sense of of um of what they have i mean if you look at the previous the films previous to ours they were films of their time you know and rob zombie for instance did what rob zombie does and rob zombie was hired to do what rob zombie does lots of people loved it you know so um i would submit that yeah of course there are remarkably talented people out there. And if Malik and Ryan ran into the right combination um, of, you know, director and cinematographer and the right storyline, um, it, it's a it's a wonderful series. I think if <laughs> there we go. There's Ruby. <laughs> What's up, Ruby? <laughs> um I, I think <laughs> I love it. Um so um I think absolutely possible, even probable that they will do something um, again with some very talented people. I don't see it happening with me, yeah. um, you know, but I, I think, and, you know, honestly, if who knows what they'd go into, but if they were going to make another film, for instance, they're going to wait another seven to 10 years or five or, you yeah. know, so it's going to be something different, but I, I knowing the quality of those guys. So I'm just proud of the fact that, you know, and I use proud the, the term pride loosely. I'm not a big fan of pride, um, but I am a fan of, you know, what a team can do when we all come together and love each other and pour our hearts and souls into something and create something beautiful and magical. And I think the legacy of these films is going to be the way they affected people. I mean, I have so many like firefighters, EMTs, cops, emergency room docs. Um, I've talked to guys who have been in firefights in Afghanistan and Iraq and they're like, dude, body parts flying everywhere, carnage. My boys are getting, my boys are wounded. And we go back and watch your movies to decompress. I've had so many people come to me and tell me their personal stories or write me and tell me their personal stories of just trauma like you would not believe, like horrible trauma. And these films have helped them relieve their trauma. So I, I think the legacy of these films is going to be so deep and far reaching that you really can't quantify it. Um, or even qualify it. That's a, I mean, a fantastic answer. We were talking off air about the writer strike and the actors uh, union happening. Um, now you said that you're producing some films and you've, you're spinning a lot of plates. You're you're a very busy man. I think you said you were fixing up your uh, 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 one of your motorcycles before we uh, we jumped onto this. But uh, what what have you got in the pipeline? And I guess um, you know this strike that's happening is that greatly affecting you know projects that you're working on. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, so first of all, I voted for the strikes. I mean, I because it's the right thing to do. Um, and I ostensibly voted against my own interest because I'm producing a film. And and now I have to hold off on making a film. And this is not likely to be an easy um, strike. This is likely to be a very long one. Um, 
the the but I think this is a watershed moment, not just with the film industry, but with industry as a whole. Corporations by nature can very easily become psychopathic. In fact, um, you, you know, there are quite a few studies that show the probably easiest and number one place to find a psychopath is in the C-suite. And they're called CEOs. Yeah. You know, and these <laughs> and don't get to the top because they're kind and generous. They get to the top because they're willing to gouge out eyes and cut throats. Well, the sad thing is when our industry is, you know, you have, you know, these guys making 25 or $50 million a year who want to take a guy who makes 200 bucks a day as an extra, scan his image, and then use that in perpetuity for that $200. It's like, it's like you know, they go into the restaurant and they choke out the, the busboy because he's the guy that makes the least money and he's not worth anything, you know. But they're going to leave the general manager alone because they want their meal. They want, they'll leave the chef alone because they want their meal. But they know this guy's replaceable. Who cares about him? Well, we care. We care because we're all on this boat together. So it, it's really, it's yeah, it's impacted me. I, I, I'd be making a film this fall, and I'm not. But um, I'll, you know, I'll stay in touch with my my financial people, and um, you know, keep working the deal. And um, and when we're permitted to, and when we when we can, I'll produce my film, and then I'll produce the next one. And I'm acting in my films, and I've turned down four or five films uh, since Halloween Kills because. At this stage of the game for me, I don't need to do anything. I don't, um, you know, I'll, I'll always take the money if they want to give it to me. Um, I'll take the work if it's enjoyable, if if I think the script is well written, if I believe the director really has a vision and knows what he's doing. Absolutely, man. I love doing what I do. But I'm past the place where I'm going to work on something I don't believe in. And I'm past the place where I'm going to you know, roll over for a producer or a movie company because I feel lucky to make a movie and get screwed by them. Mm. And I think this is where the Screen Actors Guild is right now and the Writers Guild is like, we're tired of being screwed over. Like, pay us a fair wage. Give us a guarantee. You know, like, let's just do this together. And remember that without us, you guys have nothing. So it's like, you know, the writers build the aircraft. We, we're the pilots flying it. And yet the CEOs want to, you know, want, to, want us to starve. Yeah, it doesn't work that way, man. And a great way that people can keep up to date with you is uh, via Instagram. And I believe you're you're going to be making an appearance at the uh, 45 anniversary Halloween convention in Pasadena later this year, correct? Yeah, it, it, it's a fact. Um, we're really we're really excited about the 45th anniversary. And Instagram, you know, I'm 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 um, I, I post and I will post more sometimes and less sometimes. And you know, uh, I, I I get so freaking busy. I um, but. Um, the 45th anniversary is, is going to be freaking amazing. Um, I mean, just about everybody, if not everybody who's ever done a Halloween film is going to be there. And I mean, talking about guys who've done one stunt, it's, it's going to be, it's going to be amazing. So I would, it's, you know, and the way you Aussies travel, um, you know, that, that means a three week vacation, you know, a holiday in, in, in the United States somewhere. So man, come on up, man, have some fun. Absolutely. And I guess sort of, did you know what you're getting yourself into with uh, taking on uh, Michael Myers? I mean, you know, the Halloween franchise, you know, in my opinion, is the, the horror franchise and the fans are so enduring. Did you did you know that uh, what you'll get yourself into prior to 2018? I never thought of it. I mean, the, the moment I get a call to do a work. So my dad was my dad was special forces, a combat veteran, and then he was a stock car racer. Right. So my dad was very mission oriented, raised seven boys. They had 27 foster kids from birth to adoption. I mean, my dad was very mission oriented. And I think he imbued my brothers and I with that, that sort of mentality where the moment I'm put, you know, the moment I've got something out of my crosshairs, that's all that exists. I never thought about, um, you know, what that meant or what, you know, or this being an iconic character or what the fans would think. I never thought about anything. The one thing I wasn't prepared for was the love. The amount of love that I've gotten, that I've received from the fan base has just been just mind-boggling, just mind-boggling. And and that for that, I'm eternally grateful. I'm, I'm just, you know, uh, I mean, I, I I need to give David Gordon Green a big wet sloppy kiss for that, you know, <laughs> just just for, 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 you know, for creating this this reality for me, this this loving reality. James Jude Courtney, you've been very gracious with your time. Thank you for speaking with us at Talking Shape here and uh, all the best with the future endeavours with those things that you're producing and uh, hopefully this writer strike and uh, this actors union thing, we, hopefully we 
can get it sorted, but um, really appreciate your time and um, love your work. Thank you, brother. I appreciate it. I look forward to meeting you in person. We'll make it down under sooner or later. Thank you for listening to Talking Shape, the ultimate Halloween franchise podcast created by the fans. Make sure to stay up to date with the latest episodes by following Talking Shape on Twitter at Talking underscore Shape and liking us on Facebook. Feel free to give us a review on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify. We appreciate your support. Until next time. Go home. Go home.